You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 91 is Rachel Taylor Brown, a Portland, Oregon artist who's put out 10 albums since the mid-2000s. You're right now hearing Little Gyre from her most recent 2018's Run Tiny Human. We're going to be playing two short songs from that, Maker and God, to give you a sense of the variety on that album. Then looking back to 2011's World So Sweet for the song Taxidermy, and to 2006, the song is Ormalu from the album of that name. And we conclude by listening to a song from 2014, We'll Have A, from the album Felony. For more information, please see racheltaylorbrown.com. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And if you enjoy what we're doing, please donate at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. So I will have played a little bit of Little Gyre to give folks a taste of your new album, Run Tiny Human. We're going to immediately discuss two other shorter songs from that. Do you want to give us a little background of where you're at with this album? And then we can talk specifically about Maker and God. The album came out October 9th. That was the national international release date. And it's been getting a lot of nice attention so far, for which I'm thankful. And because you never know, this is my 10th album, but it had good responses to albums and I've had bad responses. And over the last several, I've been fortunately very, very lucky, but you just never know. So when you're getting ready to put one out, you get that feeling, clenched stomach feeling usually for for me for months in advance or even years in advance if it's been in the making that long. But so far, so good. We had the album release show just a week ago, a little over a week ago, and came off well. We had a really nice crowd. It was mostly musicians, which was kind of nerve-wracking and also made me happy at the same time because I like having musicians in an audience. It keeps you on your toes, that's for sure. Let's get into specifics about the music, about what you were going for with the style. I think the easiest thing to do is just put one of the examples in full out in front of people. Usually I choose for one interview like this, three songs that kind of stretch through someone's career. There's so much variety on this album. I could not pick just one. So I picked two short ones, Maker and God. So let's play Maker first. Can you tell us very briefly what that's about? Then we'll play it in full and we can talk about the details of it. Well, it had a subtitle when I wrote it, Maker, and then in parentheses, I put on Richard Florida and the Insufferable Horde. <laughs> okay. Do you know much about Richard Florida? Tell us. He wrote a book called The Rise of the Creative Class in 2002, and he was the one that really kind of got the ball rolling. I mean, his thought was that cities would be revived by basically rich white kids, but that's not how he put it. He called them high bohemians. And makers, you know, creative class makers. I think the unfortunate thing was that he broadened that creative class umbrella to include, I think, actually more of the people that identified with the label creative and maker. Most of them were from the tech world. And you saw this flooding into the cities. You know, I'm from Portland, Oregon, and Portland's undergone just whiplash change in the past 20 years or so, and especially in the last 10 years. And I know the same things happened in Austin. There's all the, all of these sort of it girl cities, I call them, that have been heavily impacted from this so-called creative class moving in. But it's displaced a lot of working people and blue-collar people who are not white. And it was highly celebrated, this class of people. And Richard Florida was kind of the person behind that. And so the song maker, I'm, I'm basically... I'm not a fan of the term maker. 
<laughs> not a fan of the term creative either, but maker, I was saying to someone, to me, when you hear someone say, hey, I got to make, that means you have to go urinate, you have to pee. And so whenever I hear the word maker, I think of someone who's peeing, for one thing. I, do you know that? Have you heard that before? It wouldn't have come to mind, but yeah, sure. It must be a thing from my rural redneck roots or something, because I remember people saying, I got to make. But anyway, it's just kind of a song that's poking a little bit of fun at, at this very self-congratulatory group of people that start moving into cities and feeling, and you know, and immediately pronouncing, we'll save you. We're going to save your city. We're here now. Everything's all right. Well, you're So let's talk about this musically. This has definitely got a kind of a Eastern European Kurt Weill oompa oompa thing going on. Any idea where that came from? Why that style fit this idea as you've been describing it? Yeah, I didn't really think about it. I had a slightly different rhythmic pattern in my mind when I wrote it. And I think that there were some logistical matters that resulted in us sort of modifying it. But I think that oompa style, as you're calling it, to my ear, it does kind of do a good job of conveying pompousness <laughs> uh-huh. that I kind of want in the, in the song. I think it fits because it, it feels a little bit pompous, I guess. Well, that explains the intro as well. That is, you have this nice little classical thing that comes back at the end. This sounds very regal. I have a classical background, and one of the most enjoyable things for me singing-wise in that song was I did a trill, but like in full chest voice, 
of high, which just cracked me up because, you know, trills are used a lot in classical music and vocalists. You learn to do that shake, that kind of vocal shake thing. And um, that made me laugh to do that, like full voice and chest voice. But it's definitely a little classical beginning and a little, I think I bring in it at the end too. But that was just me being an idiot. I don't really have any plan with stuff like that. I thought, oh, this would sound good hooked on to the front of this, and that's why it wound up there. Do these come lyrics first, or is it that main piano riff that dun, 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 that then establishes the chorus? What is the first thing that comes, the essence of the song for you here? I go both ways. I mean, you're a songwriter, too. I was admiring and kind of in awe of your Lucy Lawless song. Yes, I go both ways as well. You write words first sometimes, and then music first sometimes I go back and forth and I don't really have a pattern and I think on that one yeah to answer your question I've started with that you know and then and then I came up with the lyrics later yeah it's definitely one of the catchier ones and I was trying to think of a good way to characterize how these many shorter songs that they're almost like illustrated aphorisms or illustrated slogans that here it's the, we'll take your town and make it better. Of course, you know, everybody that writes a catchy chorus and repeats it over and over, you could say something similar about, but in this one in particular, like you have all the musical material out by about a minute in, and then it's really just repeating and getting nastier a little bit and having fun with the arrangement. But really it's a very concise song in its idea. Thank you. I mean, to me, I'll take that as a compliment. I know some people may not see it that way. To me, it's much easier to write a lot of words or to express something in a lot of words. And I write really fast. So literally, like when I'm typing at a keyboard, I had someone the other day that I was talking back and forth with go, ah, it's overwhelming because it came to optimism is so intense, but I just type fast, but I kind of think fast as I'm writing. And so I can write a lot of words pretty quickly. To me, the trick And the thing that I hope to do that's kind of also an interesting and enjoyable challenge to me in songwriting is to put across a feeling, a sensation, a feeling, you know, more like a stamp or an imprint. And if I'm successful in doing that, if I'm able to distill the lyrics, pare them down to the point where I'm doing that, then I'm very happy. I sometimes feel like words can get in the way. You can be too verbose. You can use too many words. And I love words. I love language and I love words. And so it's a challenge sometimes for me because it's a temptation to use a word sometimes that I'll look at it and I'll go, ah, now that's a little over the top. You know, try to say this more simply, try to put this across more simply in a more direct way. And what makes it illustrated, just the lyric, we'll take your town, we'll make it better. I mean, I can understand from you describing the idea that that's sarcastic, basically, but putting it in that... It's pretty sinister, the way that you sing it. And then, especially then, singing it high and kind of screaming it, that really illustrates what tone you're going for, I think. There was a little bit of this savior complex, I think, to Richard Florida and to a lot of, like I said, I mean, this is being really simplistic, but a lot of rich white kids, basically, moving into these areas that, you know, here we are. We'll take care of you. We're going to make this, oh, we'll fix this town. And I really heard that many people moving into Portland. And I don't want to malign everybody moving into Portland because we've gained so many wonderful people. A lot of my friends moved up in the 90s. And it was a little different group. There were people that moved here, I think, in the 90s who were more interested in the existing values, I guess, of Portland at that time, which were very, very interior and quiet and introverted. And, you know, it was the time of Elliot Smith and people 
finding the darkest corner and the darkest, rainiest part of Portland and sort of hunkering down and doing their little private creative project. Whereas now, since the advent of Richard Florida and all of that, and we're going to save your cities, that Portland now is a much more outgoing, party, extroverted city and place. So it's really, really changed. I mean, the entire character of the city has changed. So I will refer folks to listen to your song, Portland, that addresses this more directly. Let's shift here, though. On the same album, another very short song, God, which, again, has very few elements to it, and they're so effective. It's not a fast song. It's more just a presentation of almost just a couple ideas here. Do you want to give a little intro to that before they hear that in full? That song, I guess all I can say about it is it's deeply sincere. I mean, I guess it came out and I wrote it and sang it exactly as I feel. God, I miss you, God. I don't have any friends anymore. I got no one to talk to God, I miss you, God Never thought I'd be I want to highlight both of those things from the new album because the first one is pretty snarky and it gets nasty. And this is just so pure and sincere. And I guess, did you start taking lots of piano lessons kind of person growing out of playing Chopin and stuff? Because I definitely hear this growing out of that experience as well as a lot of your other piano stuff. Or were you more a listen to rock and roll on the radio kind of person? My brothers had bands, so I actually did have more rock in the house and didn't really come around to classical music until high school choir. And then a well-meaning choir director kind of shoved me toward vocal lessons. And that's how I wound up as a singer in music school and then went on to do a lot of classical stuff after that. But I always felt a little bit like a fake or a lot like a fake because while I had the natural ability, I really don't feel like 
ever. My technique was very grounded. And really, what I started playing growing up, though, was more pop rock music because my brothers and listening to their music and playing by ear. I hear so much, like I have a friend who plays oboe, and every time I hear her, there's so much subtle shifts in the dynamics and in the timing, and as opposed to when I record, even when I'm doing an acoustic thing, often at this point, I turn on the click track, string it across the measure. You know, that's the only way when I'm playing with other musicians that I'm going to be able to make sure that everything is lined up properly. And what you do is just so much more like a song like this. Are you even counting or is it just fermatas between, so God, I miss you, God, pause, that one high note, another pause, and then you're starting the next one. I assume you're just completely going on feel. You don't even know how many beats of rest are in there. Oh, yeah, you're right about that. I... I'm going completely on feel. I don't think that song's never even been written out. I don't write out my music. And if someone tackles me and makes me describe what's happening, like what key I'm in even, I don't even pay attention to that when I'm writing. I just sit down and start going, and I try not to let any part of me get in the way of it. I go a little bit, not like into a trance or anything, but I just try to get out of my own way and get to whatever is trying to get out of me. And... I love dissonance and I like using space in songs. That song is almost, you know, it is a prayer. And I pictured it being sung, I guess, in a big space. And Jeff Stuart Saltzman, who I've recorded with for years and years, you sometimes need that click track. Like on some of those faster songs, we use the click track, the bigger full band, you know. He was really adamant that he wanted me to record the vocal and the piano together so that it felt very, as it does when I play it rather than record the piano first and then overdub the vocal. So he set me up in this cozy little room that we're in and he was just sitting, you know, across the room from me when I recorded that. It's unusual for me to feel comfortable enough with someone sitting across from me when I'm recording a song that's that intimate. I'm very good friends with Jeff. We've recorded eight albums together and I completely forgot he was there, actually, as I did that song. I really did feel like I was alone. It was a very private kind of thing. Yeah, it sounds like you're saying that was a first take then. I think it was, yeah. And we used a lot of scratch tracks on that album too. You know, just the scratch track is the thing that you do to have there for, I know you know note this, but I was being a helpful explainer <laughs> for anybody listening, which probably isn't necessary. But for most of those small songs that we recorded, you know, the quieter things, we did not use a click track because we wanted to preserve the breath. You know, it's like the feeling, the breathing of the song. It's like this little organism that has its pauses and it rushes along sometimes. Yeah, I think even throughout the song, each time you do it, it's what, three or four times that you do this main expression. Yeah, I guess it's three verses. They kind of get more expansive, I think, slightly as you go. You're milking it a little more. Right, which I didn't really think about as I was doing it, but I'm into the song. I'm thinking about what I'm saying, and I think that just happens naturally if you let it. Well, just one piece of music theory for people. I had to go over to my piano and figure out what the high note was. It's a ninth. The song is in, or at least the chord right before that is a D chord, and the high note is an E. So you're playing the second of the scale or a ninth if you're putting it. But it's like, you know, it's three octaves up or whatever. It's so. Yeah, you're right. It's three octaves up from the lower note. In fact, we used a synth, I think, to double that lower note so that's even deeper sounding. Or else we used the low ender, which my friend Lee, who's my guitarist and a good songwriter himself, he invented the low ender. Do you know about the low ender? What is the low ender? It's a plugin you can use that takes any lower note and like makes it sound even lower. It's like octaves lower. Sure. 
if he hears me explain that, he'll probably be horrified because I'm sure it's much more, there's a better explanation for it, but that's how I view it. It makes things sound lower. Well, no, that's great. I've certainly used an octave or pedal, like maybe I have an, a chimey guitar part and I want to thicken it up. But that, of course, creates an octave below of the entire chord. And you're just saying it actually figures out what the lowest pitch is and adds an octave below just that. I've used those. Those are great. I like the octave pedal. But yeah, it's an E. You're right. I love that you figured that out. You actually went and grabbed it. That's so great. It really takes its time. I think it fades out for about 20 seconds. You know, it's just really let it be there before we have another song just jump all over it. Do you have any thoughts about the album sequencing? I mean, the first time I heard it, I was like, this should be kind of an outro. And sure enough, you actually reprised this for the outro, just with no singing, that you thought this was a cool enough part that I'm going to put it with just you playing the piano part with a bunch of psychedelic effects, people speaking Latin, <laughs> some tape effects, things, to, and just shove that at the end. So that really sends you out on a plaintive note. It's Italian and it's St. Francis of Assisi. So I like to call myself a realist. But I understand someone qualifying me as cynical, because that's certainly true. But I'm a hopeful cynic, and I do end the album. You're actually the first person that's asked me about this. That's interesting. That, for me, at the end of the album, using this statement or prayer that's about the beauty of the world, if you translated it, is a hopeful note for me. Wistful, hopeful note, I guess. But it's a little benediction. You know, it's almost like how at the end of a service, you've got the go in peace, serve the Lord kind of thing. I'm a heathen, so I don't know. (laughs) I know you have an interest. You did an album where half of it was about the lives of saints. So for humanistic reasons, people who live these extreme lives are just interesting. Imagining what it would like to be in that situation. Yeah, those stories are so freakish. They're fascinating to me. But yeah, the end of the album, I mean, despite... The cynicism throughout, it was meant to be a little blessing or something at the end, that reprise of God. I mean, a wistful blessing because that song expresses hope, but mainly sorrow, you know, and I've said this before, but I, I see a lot of ugliness in the world and in humans, and but it doesn't prevent me from seeing the good. And I think, despite myself, <laughs> I can't quench that last little bit of hopefulness. Well, speaking of the ugliness, let's go to the next song. Uh, I wanted to look back to, you have some songs on the new album. I mean, even when you get into Little Gyre and some of the other tracks at the beginning that get this ugly and Maker, we see a little bit of that when you go full on. But Taxidermy, looking back to your 2011 album, World So Sweet, I thought was a great example of, it actually doesn't even have that much more musical material than that Maker song, but you really let it. The Maker's, you know, two and a half minutes or so. This one is a full four minutes because you really let it sizzle. And there's this crazy bridge sort of section with just all these circus effects. And you just let the dissonance reign. So I wanted to have an example of this out there. Uh, Do you want to tell a little bit about, you know, this is back in 2011, how this project and this particular song were maybe different than what you're doing right now? Isn't it weird to think of how different things were back then? Now, it's odd to think of 2011 now. I guess I'm thinking particularly politically, but I think kind of the emotional state of Americans and, well, not just Americans, but I've always been kind of a skeptic. And as I said, you know, a little, I look at things with a squinty eye, (laughs) but I think more people are feeling hopeless and it's changed a lot, but that wasn't what you were asking. So taxidermy, that song actually is about plastic surgery was what I was thinking about. I was just so 
intrigued or amused or disgusted, I don't know, by the human thing of, you know, we like to shoot animals and when they're sitting in a tree, enjoying the sunlight and licking themselves, cleaning themselves or something completely peaceful and passive. And then we cut their heads off and we make them look like they're snarling and ready to attack us. I don't remember exactly how I wound up thinking about plastic surgery in the same way, but it seemed to make sense to me at the time. I'm, I'm not explaining it very well. Okay. Now. Well, that makes it less morbid, the fact that you're actually talking about something that living humans do to themselves, even though you're using this image. So.
some really nice dissonance in the chord progression here. It's just overall such a nice bouncy song. I had written down Hey Bulldog. It kind of reminded me of that. One of my favorite Beatles songs, you know, one of their lesser known things. Kind of a slow down with that dark and it just opens the door for chaos to potentially enter in. And it does here. Well, thank you. Since you're a musician, I'm going to ask you, what did you think? I got such interesting ideas from, I mean, a lot of writers, I guess, like reviewers of the album about what comprises that middle section as far as the thing. Which sounds like it has an octave pedal on it. I, I thought that was a guitar with an octave pedal. Or some kind of parallel octaves? No, it's several things. But that's what I'm, my question for you is, because I'm just curious, if you don't mind my asking. So what instruments do you think are those? So that's not guitar just sliding? That's what I assumed was that underlying noise. That's one of them. So did you put strings over that or something? Some cello or something? That's viola. All right. And then one other, there's one other crucial element that I just can't wait to tell you, but I want to see if you can guess it. I mean, I know there's glockenspiel all over the place, but I think in terms of that particular noise that you're talking about, no, I just thought it was guitar with a bunch of effects on it. Well, you're right. It does have effects on it, and I wouldn't know, I don't know enough about pedals and things to tell you (laughs) what they are, but it's a stylophone. What is a stylophone? Oh my gosh, you're going to want a stylophone after I tell you about it. It was a toy, basically, a toy instrument that has a little stylus and a metal... It's maybe the size of a brick of cheese, and it's got this little stylus and this metal panel-y thing, keyboard. looks like a tiny keyboard, but it's made out of metal, and it just makes the most obnoxious noise when you touch the stylus to the metal. It kind of has a tone, but it's just like this kind of sound. Yes, I would not have guessed that ever. I'm looking it up now. A pocket retro synth is how it is described in some of these places here. But I'm definitely going to go and watch a bunch of Stylophone videos on YouTube as soon as we get off here, because that (laughs) seems pretty damn cool. They're so fun. They're they're really obnoxious sounding. They just sound like some guy sitting in the corner going, Yeah, I meant to ask you about your family of instruments. I mean, we had the same thing with Maker, where you had, you know, a definite sound palette here. Of course, your piano is, is almost always in there. But like in Maker, there was this distorted bass that was making it, you know, so it wasn't a normal oompa song. It was, you know, a sludge sludge song. And Taxidermy, we have a similar, the bass in particular is smoother, but you've got this crazy glockenspiel, or is that what it is that's answering you all the time, or just, you know, some synth patch? No, that's a toy piano. That's a JMR. My little, I have ah. a number of JMRs, but I have to give Jeff, who I record with, credit for introducing me to a lot of these instruments when we initially met, like Stylophone. I mean, he had a collection, like you would not believe, of the weirdest, most fascinating, wonderful instruments. And as far as the sounds go that you were describing, too, for the bass, that's total props to Jeff, because... What I do is I say, well, I want this to sound really skanky, you know. I just say something like I want it to sound, and then I'll I'll make the sound with my voice. And then, since, like I said, I'm pretty ignorant about pedals and about plugins and things like that. It's and he uses pedals. He was very into analog for many years, and you know he does things digitally now. But he's got that old school background of recording, and he's just deeply, deeply knowledgeable. So. I don't even try to learn what pedal I would tell him. I just say, Jeff, I want this sound. And he'll do it. He'll figure out how to get that sound. So it makes life really easy for me. 
Well, let's focus on some of the parts that you were behind here. So, for instance, there's this harmony that you introduced. I can help, I can do it, I can do it myself. On a night, busy Monday, the 5th or the 12th. So it's a, just this weird, very parallel harmony so that the high part just is not pretty. How are you feeling out what exactly you're going to do there, or do you have any idea? Oh, I just heard it that way. And what is that, a fourth? I've never really figured it out. Da, 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 da. Yeah, it's a fourth. I like unconventional harmonies, but I wasn't looking to do an unconventional harmony there necessarily. I just, I liked that weird fourth interval there. It just sounded right. Even a little earlier in the song, the fact that you have, I'm not sure what the best way to describe this is, but a lot of songs, they have some kind of a blues structure, right? You're walking around on the one and then you go up to the five for a little bit and then you go back to the one or something. So you got this, what I would call the B section about 28 seconds in where you're doing a similar kind of movement, but it's certainly not to the five. So I didn't sit down at the piano. Is it just going up a step? What What are you doing there to go to that little B section? Just the one line. I don't know what I'm doing. Okay. But I have to tell you, what it's really fun to talk to someone that's looking at the songs this way. I have to tell you, it's really enjoyable. A lot of times it's not the music theory part that matters. It's kind of what the dramatic impact is. Going to that section, it sounds a little more major or something, like you're opening up a little bit, and then you're sinking right back down into the minor key thing, that it's like a peak above the surface of the water, and then you fall back down. I guess it's sort of how I think of it. I like that description. I'll take that. (laughs) And then the way the note choice in what the Jamar is doing, it's like you've been playing on the white keys and like, oh, let's have an answering thing that just uses all the black keys or something, you know, some... (laughs) This angry animal is biting at the edge of of what you've been singing about or something. I'm not sure how to characterize what's going on there. That's a good characterization and it fits with the song for sure. Yeah, I wanted that Jamar to sound a little unhinged. I deliberately was playing that part not quite in time most of the time, Mm -hmm. but it struggles to catch up at the very end. You know, and it stays barely within the grid of time. (laughs) But yeah, the Jamar adds definitely a sinister little sugary element to it. When I'm writing, I guess it is all visceral for me. It's all feeling. I want to put across a feeling. And then I guess that's what I was referring to earlier about trying to stay out of the way of. When I'm writing, I want that pure feeling of whatever I'm thinking or feeling to come out in the music. I want to, I want to put it across in the most direct way possible, I guess. And so it's sort of like just, bleh, you know, barfing your innards out there and trying to... <laughs> it's really pleasant way of describing it, I know, but... Well, it can be more or less literally. In this case, we need to play the transition here. So it's actually, you know, not that far into the song, but here, where it really takes off. It's the transition to the guitar solo, but it's like the gates of hell are now opening. Yeah, I wanted to sound like that. And I have to very proudly proclaim that I did that guitar solo at the urging Ah. of Jeff. I actually, my first two albums, believe it or not, were guitar-based. But I am by no 
stretch of the imagination, a great guitarist. <laughs> I'm just a very serviceable guitarist. And I would love to be one of those guitarists, you know, that can use the pedals. I would love to use the pedals. That's my goal one of these days. But Jeff's hooked up this series of pedals for that section, that little intimel section. I was saying, well, you should do it. You play it. And he was like, no, no, you should do it. And I think he handed me an Ebo. Do you know what an Ebo is? Yeah, that's sustained. So it sounds like a cello or something. Yep. But I think I used the Ebo on that solo. Well, so there's that raw, 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 that sustained one, which definitely sounds like Ebo. There's also this grunty kind of, I wrote Mark Rebot. I'm not sure if that's how to pronounce his name, but he does a lot of stuff for Tom Waits. Let me just let, play a little of the soul here. So we've got the wah, wah, and then, but we also have the this thing that obviously has a detuning pedal on it or something, you know, so it's playing parallel nothings. I don't know. I remember I was tapping that, like the I just tapped. Oh, okay. But maybe it wasn't the Evo, maybe it wasn't something else, an octavizer or whatever you're saying, or octaver. I have a pedal that does an octave up and it does an octave down. It has a delay in it too, but it also has a knob on it where you determine what the pitch of the thing that's going to double you is. And if while you're playing, you turn that knob, it just sounds crazy. You know, it's like the pitch bend wheel on a, on a synth basically. Well, Jeff must've been turning the knob then. And then I was playing whatever I was playing. This is so fascinating to me. I'm learning so much about myself. <laughs> Well, and this is not exactly recent, so it's not like you remember like it was yesterday what was going on here. But <laughs> <laughs> No, but it's great. I was so pleased how that guitar solo came out. That was like the first take, too. I mean, Jeff and I, I record really quickly. The things that take time are when you get uh, the band in, and actually everyone individually who comes in and plays in the band is also very quick. In the past, like on that song, we recorded the band songs all at once with everyone there. But on this most recent album, we pieced it out a little bit more because we recorded it. You know, we would record the band in a bigger studio in town somewhere. But Run Tiny Human, the last album, was recorded all in Jeff's basement studio. And then, you know, I would do the scratch track and then we'd bring in the drums and the bass and things were recorded separately. For Taxidermy here, the end of the song is pretty long. You have that huge guitar solo and then you go back to the I'm a snarl, I'm a risper, permanent fix. And you have a little bit of variation on how the effects are going or how exactly you're singing those lines. Like it gets louder once, it gets quieter once. You know, you've got just a fade out that's like a full minute long. <laughs> is this supposed to become like a mantra or something? This kind of repetitive thing that is scratching at you just again and again and again and not letting up for quite a while? Well, since you've been forced <laughs> to listen to my music, you probably have recognize that I'm a fan of a good outro. Uh, <laughs> I, probably, I go a little overboard with the outros, but I just liked what was going on. And I like that call and response. I'm a snarl. I'm a ripper. And then the two little pleasant voices, I'm a permanent fix coming in. And I just wanted to hear that. Yeah, I guess saying it's a mantra is sort of a, not a bad idea. I just wanted to hear more of it, I think. I think that's all. I, I'm a sucker for an outro. That's all. I don't know if I've ever heard a fade that's quite so long. Like that it's still going and it's noticeably getting quieter, 
but it's getting quieter so gradually that it's just like the parade is moving slowly away from you or something, I guess is a good analogy here. That's nice. I like that. I've actually tried to do that live. I try to do live fades and it just makes everyone laugh. <laughs> well, I remember hearing Paul McCartney saying that, you know, when he first listened to albums, he just thought that everybody, when they played, they just got quieter and quieter and quieter. And then, and then they were just silent. And then they played the next, like that. He just didn't understand that how listening to a record is different from the live band playing it. So you perverting that and trying to do it on stage, I think is great. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> We're going to play one more song in full here. I want to really look back. Ormalu, the title track from Ormalu, 2006. To really get it, just one of your more stately, it's still weird, but it's very pretty, piano ballads. But, you know, unlike God, this is like a fully fleshed out concept with verses and choruses and a bridge that moves somewhere. And, you know, so it's a, it's a more normal song in certain ways. I want to make sure we're representing this strand in what you do. Do you want to say a little bit about this song and what you were doing with music way back at this point, 2006? Ormalu was the first album I recorded together with Jeff Saltzman. And I pulled those songs together and wrote some of them specifically to see how we work together. It was a really wonderful experience. We recorded that album very quickly. And it was apparent very quickly to me that here was someone who got the way my brain works. And I love that you picked Ormalu. I love that you picked that song. None of my songs are well-known, but that's probably the least well-known song of mine. I don't think very many people are familiar with this song. And the album came because my sister and I were talking about what's the meaning of the word Ormalu. And we were looking it up and refreshing our memories. And, you know, it's a substitute. I think actually originally way back, you know, the... French ormolu was real gold. It's that gold or gilt trim that's on furniture and mirrors and very ornate. But ormolu as we see it now is the fake gold. It's like tin brass alloy or something. Tin and copper alloy with brass or something. So we're oh, okay, so it's fake gilt. It's fake gold. I was saying, gosh, it's such a pretty word though. Wouldn't that be a nice name for someone? Ormolu. And then I was just riding my bike around like up in the cemetery or in the streets of Portland and the bike paths and things. And I started thinking about it more. And I was thinking, well, what if someone did name their child Ormolu? That's pretty awful. You're naming your child after fake gold and not real. It took my mind along the path of fake or a child that's not quite valued, you know, that's sort of a second best. And this is going to sound terrible because I have the utmost admiration for people who adopt kids. They're like my heroes above all parents. But I was kind of thinking, I guess, along the lines of, I don't know, there's a story by D.H. Lawrence, maybe, called The Rocking Horse Winner. And it's about a boy that's trying to win his mother's love. He just isn't able to love him. You know, that's the crux of the story. I'm a big fan of Charlotte Bronte and Jane Eyre, and I don't know, maybe I had Anne of Green Gables on the mind, but I was thinking about unwanted children. This explanation is going on way too long, but that was the genesis of this song, Ormolu, was of a couple who couldn't have their own child and who desperately really wanted their own child. They really didn't want another person's child, but they adopt in order to, you know, fulfill that need since they can't do anything else. And... They never quite love this child. They can't quite bring themselves to love this child, and they start projecting all of these horrible qualities on her. So that's what the song is about. 
Initial riff, this minor key. The whole song is very cinematic. I mean, you've got a definite story there. I hadn't interpreted it straight up as them imputing these horrible qualities on the baby. I thought that it was actually about a devil baby or something, but I guess. I've heard other people 
you know, or creeped out by it because totally understandably, that is the interpretation I can see most people getting from that song. You know, and I don't ever try to get in the way of whatever anyone's impression of a song is because it kind of, you know, once you put something out there, it becomes whatever a listener thinks it is, basically. And people form attachments to songs, though not this one. (laughs) It's a sorrowful song to me for this unwanted child who, through no fault of their own, is not loved and is never going to be loved. The ambiguity there is just in the narrative voice that you're picking, right? If it was purely the mother saying these nasty things about the child, that would be one thing. But in this kind of situation, if it actually happens, you wouldn't expect the the mother to actually say, my arms are full of the devil itself. Like that is you more spelling out what is going on in the mind of this narrator, not necessarily what the narrator would actually admit to, right? People who don't love their kids are not like, my kid is the devil. No, they just can't feel anything. And it's much less on the surface, I think. Well, right. I don't think most people are going to express that because people care People care way too much what other people think of them and what they look like. And what they let themselves think of themselves, right? They wouldn't even let themselves think that they're that cold and horrible. Yes. You're going to hide that feeling from yourself. But I do think people have those feelings. And when they are given an opportunity to express them, like in the case of the safe haven law, in Nebraska that allowed people to drop off unwanted children at fire stations and hospitals. Do you remember this? I can guess what you're going to say next about this, that it was really taken advantage of. Well, it was a little horrifying and it was very telling. You know, I thought about that dark underside to humanity and also to the difficulty of parenting. That's the lesser of things, but Yeah, I wrote a song on World So Sweet called Mercy in Nebraska that talks about that very thing. And what happened was people dropped off whole families of children. They made the mistake of making the age limit up to 18. And then they quickly changed that law because they found that people were dropping off. Like there was this one man who dropped off, was it nine kids, I think? And he kept his oldest daughter because he wanted someone to do chores around the house you know, and kind of be his de facto wife. And then that man wound up getting married again and having more children. But the law was so well-intentioned, that safe haven law, you know, and to protect children. And it just went horribly awry in a way that no one expected. And I firmly believe that with as many good parents that I know, there are people and they can't admit this. You know, it's just not allowed to admit that you wish you hadn't had children. But I do think there's a significant number of people who then, and they can still love their kids. I don't mean that, but who wish they hadn't had children. And it's just something that no one can really talk about. So with the advent of the internet, you know, there's forums all over the place where people talk about it anonymously. And I really, really, really appreciate loving parents. I'm so delighted when I see people who are like really loving caring parents and who are in love with their children. I think Rousseau did that, like had 10 kids and gave them all the orphanages because he didn't want to take care of them. When I bring that up just because... Who did that? Rousseau, the patron saint of be more authentic and don't let civilization corrupt you. And sounds like he would support a lot of the things you're in favor of, but apparently in his life (laughs) did that. Wow. I've been listening to too much econ talk and hearing this situation makes me feel like It's kind of much better for people to give their kids to somebody who does love them rather than just 
treat them like crap for their whole lives. And so I keep hearing these arguments on that podcast for legalizing things like organ markets and, you know, so this would be another baby markets that's just more efficient if you could get people, parents that actually want the kids. I don't know that there's any good solution, frankly, but. And that's already possible now. I think it's terribly easy if you don't want your child to give it up for adoption or. I haven't tried. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Neither have I. That's an interesting one to regard. Distribution of children. Huh, that's a poser. Let's get back to your song. This is a sad song, but you have, let me play. We named you for metal. Named you for stuff that looks like the So this has been kind of a lament, but it, it gets pretty energetic up there. That you have right before this, you have a piano break that goes into a major key. It kind of gets more regal and bigger, and then has this anthem-like explosion. We named you for metal. We named you for stuff that looks like the real thing, and then it gets soft again. So where does that moment of grandeur fit into this lament that you're thinking of? That is a very almost classical accompaniment. You know, the piano part that I wrote for this song, and it's a little unusual for me, not to introduce some classical elements, I guess, but it is almost anthemic, like you're saying, or it's kind of a formal section, and I don't know where that came from. It is sort of like a proclamation that they're making almost proudly, but then pointing out after the fact a little sinister way that looks like the real thing, you know, as opposed to... Mm -hmm. That is the real thing. And then she slips back or he slips back into the, your sweetness is sour, so is your touch. You really shouldn't want so much, Ormalu. And that screaming, you know, the note that I do is sort of the pinnacle of the letting the real feelings out of the people that are so careful to conceal them. But it's interesting to be taken through these questions because I don't generally stop and parse or think about how the things came together. I guess I see this more as a drama, right? Whereas the song God, there's certain similarities in the musical approach, but that's just a direct expression. And that's why it goes away pretty quickly. (laughs) It doesn't develop, like that's the way actual emotions are, is that often it's just kind of a splash, a snapshot of something. Whereas this is a little epic, a little ode that you're sketching out here. And so having the character, you know, just picturing like, extended Shakespearean soliloquy that it has to have some dramatic movement in it. And, you know, so this all makes sense from a theatrical perspective. That's a very good description. It is a very theatrical song. And I did think of it very much in terms of characters, you know, and of someone, you know, of that parent who wouldn't admit to anyone that they don't love their child or that it can't attach to their child. They're unable to attach their child. It is sort of a snapshot of their interior in a private moment with that child, maybe holding it and staring at it and feeling nothing but repugnance, I guess. And those are the kind of the thoughts that are in their mind, you know, they're struggling to attach. And and then you just think of this poor baby, (laughs) who's just a baby, utterly helpless and in the care of this person that does not like them. All right, let's play just the very end of the song, this interesting chord that you stop on.
how do you end these things? Often you have a long outro. There's still a pretty long outro in this song, but that particular ending to kind of have it die in a little sad whimper, I thought was interesting. Do you have any idea how you came up with, okay, I'm going to do that chord instead of something else? I don't know. (laughs) It's what I liked. It's how it felt to me. I don't think it was any kind of a conscious choice. It's, I hate to sound so mystical, magical, you know, like, oh, the fairies brought it to me. It was brought to me on a zephyr wind. (laughs) But it was just what I felt. That's all. It's what I heard in my head. Right. Okay. So written in the head as opposed to, like, a lot of times if I do a weird chord like that, it's because I just put my hands different places and, like, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> so it's not like I had a dream in my he- head and it translated to my hand. It's just hand first. The dream in the head is just, I want something that's unexpected here. I do that too. That happens for sure. That's part of the, I guess, what I call the endumbing, the chosen endumbing when you're to borrow a kind of a word from the Simpsons. Yeah, I'll sit down and I'll just, I'll do the same thing. I'll put my hands down on the piano and just sort of mess around and I'll come up with something that, oh yeah, I like that. But in this case, I know with Ormolu, it just was something, it seemed like a natural progression in my head to end that way. I feel like I was a much more interesting piano player when I was messing around with it, like as a teenager, when I really didn't know what I was doing. Not that I could be consistent about it, not that I wrote a lot of whole songs, but that just finding interesting shapes like it's so much more difficult when you have even a basic grasp of the triads and things on the piano. Like do you purposefully, I'm going to play a weird instrument or I'm going to detune the piano or I'm going to do something to make it less familiar so I can find new and exciting things. I feel like I can turn that off. Maybe it's just because I'm in the habit of it and because I started and did music without formal instruction for so long. You know, I exercised my ear and strengthened my ear before decades for, well, 15 years, I guess, before I ever got formally into learning choral pieces, you know, that were in other languages and called for some higher technical skills and things. But it is something that I do think you can turn off if you do have grounding and theory and music instruction and all that. I think you can turn it off. And I encourage people to do that because I do think it inhibits creativity if you get too locked into what is this that I'm playing and things like that. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. You were just describing it really well, where you just sort of lose some of your freedom. When to me, music's all about, writing music is all about, I can do whatever I want. There's no limitation here. And it's not like I'm going as wildly crazy as as it's possible to go by any means. I like melody, you know, and I like certain conventional musical elements, but I do like to incorporate dissonance and I do like to incorporate weird tempos and naturally gravitate toward those things. I mean, they're kind of in me. It's how I hear things. It's how I like to hear things. I've had people ask me before or want to co-write or things like that. And I noticed that a lot of people do get really hung up on what is this chord and what's this transition and naming things, I guess, or labeling things. And I noticed that in classical music, too. Um, I did many, many years of singing with professional choirs and touring. And these are really top-notch musicians and singers who are at the top of their game, the best. And I would get really frustrated because they would want to quantify things all the time. You know, a conductor would say, sing it like this, and then he'd demonstrate it. And that's all I needed. You know, that's like, okay, he demonstrated it. That's all we need. Just use your ear and do what he did. But then someone would always raise their hand and go, 
Now, does that mean we're cutting off on the end of the one or of the end of the end of the end of the one or the, the one that, you know, and they'd have to put it into some kind of terminology. And I was like, why? Just use your fucking ear. Sorry for my swearing. <laughs> just feel like, just listen. Just, he, to, he told us, he just showed us exactly how to do it. We really don't need to break it down anymore. And that is my impatient thinking. And I think they wanted to be able to mark it down in their score in a certain way, but I do think we get in the way of ourselves when we do that. This is my own personal belief. And I think the more you can get out of the way of yourself when it comes to writing music and performing music, the better it's going to be. Well, that sounds like a great thought to wrap things up on. We're going to leave people with uh, Will Have A from the 2014 album Thalamy. That's not a mistype. Thalamy. I want to say, if I don't have a chance before we get off, thank you so much. You're a total delight to talk to. It was really, really fun. Well, thank you. This was 2014 when that came out, and that was a little bit of the start of, I think, Americans beginning to, you know, and millennials, I guess I'm thinking, coming up, see the tarnish on the American dream, you know, that, oh, this is really not going to happen for me in my generation, and... You know, people who identified in the past so much with their occupation and their achievements and look to the future. I'm going to have this great career and then I'm going to have a family and then I'm going to have a great retirement and all of this. All of those things started to crumble. And I started noticing people, particularly in Portland, my area, really throwing themselves into the family part of things because I feel like it's it's the area, one of the last areas people felt that they had any control over in their lives. So family and having children became almost a cult at that time. I think it's still going strong, but it may have abated a little bit, or maybe I'm just used to it and we're all used to it now. But family just became almost fetishized, and having a family became almost like a a savior for people, and not in such a great way. On the one hand, I can see why that happens and the comfort and the security that you gain. But on the other hand, I think people have in a way sort of deified or fetishized their own families and it's taken away from a focus on the community. You know, I think we're in in America, the culture of individualism, you know, we used to have much more of a community focus and now it's very, very, very much about the individual. And I think this whole family is about that. The world is so frightening, there's never enough. The world is so frightening for me and my love. There's no one to comfort you, no one to care. There's only this one and my pitiful
Thanks so much to Rachel. A delight talking to her. For my next episode, I'm going to be turning toward electronic music. This is a listener request. The name of the fella is Steve Young. His project is called Head Flux. And though it's a very different style from Rachel's, it's equally well thought out. And Steve is a fascinating guy to talk to. So get that in every other episode at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com or patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic where you can set yourself up for a small recurring donation, which will ensure that this show keeps happening. That said, I already have several other interviews already recorded, most recently with Danny Seraphine, original drummer from the band Chicago. Super good get there. And I'm prepping for ones that are even more exciting. So hope to see you again. Until then, keep on musicin'. This is Martin Smyers. Come on, come on, come on, come on.